You're listening to Ask Alice, hosted by Alice Chernock, a licensed professional counselor in Birmingham, Alabama. Ask Alice is part of the Rooted Network family of podcasts. And for more grace-filled, gospel-centered, Bible-saturated resources, be sure to find Rooted on the web at www.rootedministry.com. Good morning, my Rooted family. It's great to be back with you for another episode of Ask Alice. I am thrilled to be back with you because we have got a great show in store for you. We are talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, which is my specialty, and that's eating disorders. So this past week across the nation was Eating Disorder Awareness Week, and I and a couple of my colleagues had the privilege of serving on an eating disorder panel at one of the universities here in town. And it's been great because I've, I've been able to do this panel for oh, probably a decade now, more than a decade. Um, and so it's been really neat to watch how the panel has grown and changed over the years. You know, I remember at first when we would do this event, there were probably 100 women that were there. No men. And then maybe three or four years later, we would have even more women. And occasionally we would have just this, this token guy that would come who was no doubt some girl's boyfriend that she like roped him into coming. <laughs> and so it's been really funny to watch. But I think something that struck me this past year of doing this, and, and I've noticed this the last few years, but really this past week, it really hit home to me how many more males are attending events like this, which is such a great thing to see because male eating disorders are such a massive problem. And I think because of the stigmas that are associated with them, very few males are willing to speak out of what they're dealing with. I think that so historically this has been considered a a girl, specifically a, a white rich girl's disease, and um, that guys are just unwilling and sort of afraid to admit that that is something that they also struggle with. So for this episode of Ask Alice, we decided to review several of the questions that I received on that panel. So instead of uh, answering some of the emails that we have gotten from you, I'm going to take some of those panel questions because we had some really stellar guys in that audience who asked some great questions. And I want to give those some added attention. So I'm going to start with the first question, and that is, do eating disorders in guys look different than they do in girls? All right? And so the the answer to that is yes, they do, to some degree. So eating disorders in general are marked by a disturbance in body weight, body size, um, food intake, calories, and any kind of preoccupation with food and weight and um, considering what is going into the body, all right? Now, for males dealing with eating disorders, typically they tend to be a little bit older. So while a lot of times we'll see the onset of female eating disorders happen around 12 or 13 years old, even sometimes even younger, Um, A lot of times male eating disorders don't typically start until 15, 16, even into their 20s. 
And a lot of times this has to do with other psychiatric problems that are associated with male eating disorders like anxiety, depression, um, much higher rates of substance abuse, um, even, even more suicidal behaviors. You know, there are a lot of men who have recently come out celebrities who have dealt with eating disorders. I know that, you know, Dennis Quaid has been very open about his eating disorder, Elton John, even Eminem. Eminem talks about how he would wake up in the morning and run about eight miles and then go to the recording studio and then come home and run another eight miles. Um, And so that, all of those things are considered male disordered eating. Russell Brand has been the, he's the comedian, um, And he has been very open about his struggle with not just substance abuse, but his eating disorder history. And then, I mean, even most recently, there was the the kicker for Penn State came out, Joey Julius. And Joey describes just kind of the perfect example of a male with an eating disorder. Um, He had that suicidal ideation before. Um, Men with eating disorders often have previously been overweight And so they're kind of struggling in order to get within a certain weight class. Um, There is that pressure to look a certain way. I think for Joey, he talks about how being a kicker, he was a little heavier set than typically most kickers. And so he would receive a whole lot of ridicule and criticism that, oh, you don't look like a kicker. You don't have a kicker's build. What are you doing trying to kick? You know, that kind of thing. And so For him, there was a lot of pressure for him to look a certain way and to fit a part that he didn't feel like he can do. Now, men are also less likely to to typically engage in purging behaviors. So I'm going to get into some different types of eating disorders, but one of them in particular is called binging. Um, I mean, bulimia, sorry. One of those types is called bulimia. And bulimia is marked by binging on food, which is eating a whole lot of food in a really short period of time, and coupled with the the need to purge that behavior. Now, women typically purge the behavior by vomiting or using laxatives or things like that. Men, on the other hand, typically purge using some kind of exercise as their compensatory behavior, all right? And so... There, there are some definitely marked differences, not to mention, going back to what we talked about before, of men are just so much less likely to seek treatment. Um, and so they, a lot of times their eating disorders become more and more entrenched because they're not willing to talk about it. According to the, the National Eating Disorder Association, 20 million women deal with eating disorders. And 10 million men deal with eating disorders. So this is not just a girl thing. This is something that is an everybody thing. Now, when we talk about eating disorders, there are definitely different types of eating disorders. And so, like I said, I want to go through a little bit just to kind of give a brief overview of some of the ones that we see most commonly, all right? So anorexia nervosa is probably the one that people usually think of when they think of an eating disorder, all right? And typically that's characterized by some kind of self-starvation, excessive weight loss. You know, it it can be any kind of um, need to prove that they are going to um, 
reduce their body size and their mass. And there's a real value system that's typically associated with anorexics, where a lot of times anorexics feel like if they are overweight, that is associated with being lazy. Or if they rest, they are inadequate, all right? So anorexics are typically very high achieving. Um, We see these are the ones who have high, high anxiety Um, need to make very good grades, achieve sports, career, very perfectionistic. And um, a lot of times they are rather inflexible with their schedules and their um, willingness to deviate from what is safe and what's known, all right? So when we talk about anorexia, that's really the one that we are, are talking about with most eating disorders. Now, What we do know, though, is that that just scratches the tip of the iceberg as to the different types, all right? We talked a minute ago about bulimia, and bulimia, like I said, was using large amounts of food in a very short period of time in order to um, really numb out a lot of the emotional piece, all right? Now, coupled with bulimia is that need to get rid of the food, a lot of times those feelings of shame and guilt are highly associated with with bulimics. Most bulimics are very humiliated that they are a bulimic. And so they don't want other people to have to know because the, the thought for them of eating a large quantity of food is really quite humiliating. I get asked all the time, so what exactly is considered a binge? You know, because all of us at some point eat a little bit too much, and we all have been like, oh, I'm so full. Um, And so I I get asked that question a lot of, well, what exactly is a binge, all right? So a binge, when we consider it, it's eating a larger amount of of food in about less than two hours, all right? And so eating past the point of being full is considered a binge. People who binge eat to the point where they are physically discomfortable. Um, And so feeling that as they're eating, a lot of times they feel that loss of control. They feel like they can't stop. They truly have no control over their body. And so feeling like they have to keep going and going and going. And then all of the negative emotions and the reactions regarding food afterwards, um, they, it, it, typically takes a bulimic a long time to calm down after a binge. Um, So we also know that they are are typically more pessimistic about the future. They feel like there's not a whole lot of hope um, and that there's nothing that's going to change. This is never going to, um, it's never going to be any different. And a lot of times we also see them act quite impulsively um, when they're stressed out. And so we notice that there can be a correlation between ADHD and bulimia. Um, A lot of that impulsivity, we have been able to correlate those two things together. And so it's really interesting. Now, I'm going to move on from bulimia because I want to talk about binge eating disorder. Because when we speak about male eating disorders, binge eating disorder is the most common one, all right? Now, binge eating disorder is very similar to bulimia in that it's consuming a large quantity of food. But what's different is that with binge eating disorder, there isn't that compensatory behavior that is trying to get rid of the food afterwards, all right? And so a lot of times there is that same feeling of eating out of control 
um, eating when you're not hungry, eating to the point where you're super uncomfortable. Um, there's a whole lot of, we'll see eating alone, um, eating in secret. You can know if someone, if, if maybe you have a roommate or a child who you find a whole lot of food wrappers and they're stuffed under their bed or in a trash can, um, a lot of times food will just disappear from the cabinets and you don't know. I, I know I bought a bag of chocolate chips and I don't understand what happened to it. I need to make my cookies and they're not there. That's an indicator that there could be some binge eating going on, all right? So with binge eating disorder, like I said, it's eating that same quantity of food, but not necessarily trying to get rid of it afterwards, all right? And this would need to occur at least once a week for about three months. We know that binge eating is so much more common in males because a lot of male athletes, in fact, approximately one in four male athletes struggles with some kind of eating disorder or disordered eating. Y'all, that's a huge amount. One in four males, athletes, are dealing with some kind of body dysmorphia, all right? And so a lot of times males with eating disorders struggle with this binge eating because there is so much pressure to either drop a weight in order to maintain a sport Um, You know, we see this a whole lot with different male athletes who are like bodybuilders, that's really common, or gymnasts, or swimmers, um, wrestlers, rowers, all of those ones that have to meet certain weight classes or focus a lot on body type and body performance. So we see that a lot. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why binge eating is so much more common in males than any of the other eating disorders. Um... We also know that runners are um, a hu- at huge risk for eating disorders. Soccer players, football players. That's why I said that the, the Julius Joey guy, um, Joey Julius guy, um, fit just kind of the perfect mentality of all of the eating disorder stuff. He had kind of a perfect storm of things that he was dealing with, being a football player, being an athlete, being a binge eater, um, having been overweight at one point, feeling the pressure to, to look a certain way, having the sports requirements due to certain training. And so a lot of times with binge eaters, they'll restrict food for a while in order to meet their weight class. And then the brain realizes, I don't know when I'm going to get food again. And so after a restriction, what happens is the brain tends to swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme. And instead of restricting, then the brain is saying, more, 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 more. I don't know when I'm going to get fed again. I'm going to crave all of these things because I'm trying to store up all of these calories because they might restrict my calories again, all right? So the brain is trying to take over and compensate for what the body has been doing if there was a restriction due to um, a weight class or you know, need kind of some kind of sports requirement. Now, the last type of eating disorder that I want to tackle for today, so this is not at all an exhaustive list of eating disorders. Um, in fact, there are so many other different types that you can name um, that they've actually created sort of an umbrella term called otherwise specified feeding and eating disorders, OSFED, all right? And so we know with OSFED, 
there are so many other ways that we've considered eating disorders that are not necessarily cleanly falling into an anorexia category or a bulimia category or a binge eating category, okay? So I say this because I want to clear up stigmas because I think a lot of people don't get help because they feel like they're not fit, they don't fit the profile of someone who is an anorexic or whatever it may be. But there are so many broad terms that I, I hope that if you are even slightly struggling, I hope that this encourages you, that you would be believed um, and that you fall into a category at some point, all right? Now, the other one that I want to talk about is not technically a diagnosable term yet. My guess is it will be soon. But this one is called orthorexia, all right? And this is derived from that word. If you break that word down, the, the roots of those words, ortho, like orthodox, is considered righteous or holy, all right? And rexia is eating, all right? So orthorexia would be typified by righteous eating. And what we're seeing with orthorexia is that people are starting to cut out increasing numbers of food groups, okay? So what starts with maybe I'm not going to eat sugar then becomes, well, now I'm not going to eat carbs. Well, now I'm not going to eat carbs and proteins, all right? And so it, it becomes more and more comprehensive as the, the disorder continues, all right? Because there's this fear of this is not a clean food, this is not a safe food, this is not a healthy food, all right? And so a lot of times what we see is that orthorexias often become anorexia, all right? There's just not a lack of, there, there's just not balance there. And so it has to be all prepared a certain way. A lot of times orthorexics will stop going out to eat because they don't know what has been put into the food that was prepared for them. They don't know how it was prepared. And so we see a lot of times that orthorexics will stop hanging out with other people. It becomes increasingly more solitude because the world, the brain, becomes so incredibly fixated on food and what's going into the body that it takes over every other aspect of life. What we're talking about in the New Testament, the New Testament makes a very clear distinction between clean foods and unclean foods and how all of that is done away with. There isn't that, that righteous eating anymore based on the New Testament. You know, I love even Matthew 15, 11, It says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Y'all, how powerful is that? That what goes into someone's mouth is not what defiles them. There is no such thing as a clean food. I am so sorry to burst a bubble out there, but kale is not a superfood. There is no such thing as a superfood, all right? I don't care what the latest fad is and what they're telling you is, oh, this is the new power food. This is going to save you. This is all clean. What is clean eating anyway? Nobody knows what clean eating is. That makes no sense whatsoever, all right? And we have the power to come back to Scripture and say there is no such thing as clean eating because it's not about what goes into someone's mouth that defiles them, but it's what comes out of their mouth. That's what defiles them. How much more powerful is it think about what actually is coming out of our mouth 
as opposed to coming in to our mouth. Now, that's not to say that some foods have, don't have greater nutritional value than other foods, all right? Of course, an apple has greater nutritional value than a bowl of ice cream, all right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that ice cream doesn't have a place in a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle, all right? Food is given to us by the Lord to be a blessing. It is intended to be one of our greatest senses of joy. And so having ice cream, having ice cream at the end of the day, having ice cream with your your 10-year-old son, those are good things. Those are healthy things. And what we know is that when we restrict ourselves from having those those treats like a bowl of ice cream, all right? When we restrict, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Oh, I'm on a diet. I can't have that right now, that kind of thing. What that does is create in our brain this sense of urgency that we need to have this. We need to have this. And it becomes this fixation that we have to the point where, All you're thinking about is, oh, I really want some sugar. I really want some ice cream. Whereas if we would allow ourselves balance the way that the Lord has called us to balance our lives, we would have a little bit of ice cream every once in a while, all right? Now, having ice cream all day, every day, that's not healthy either, all right? We know that. That's not balance. But in the same term, having an apple all day, every day, that's not balanced or healthy either, all right? And so we really have to see what are we doing in in our lives and our body to take care of it because whatever we put in, that's not what's defiling us. It's what's coming out of our body that is making an impact. I'm going to move on to our next question, and that was, how do I know if I have an eating disorder? I mean, everybody worries about their weight to some degree, right? I love this question. It's a great question. And I think that, uh, yes, to some degree, I think that people do think about their body, their type, their weight. I think that some people think about it more frequently than others. And so I don't know that it would be fair to say that everybody worries about their weight to some degree. Um, I think that there are a lot of different factors that go into that. But I think that some of, some of the, the, the warning signs that I would say to know how do I ha- how do I know if I have an eating disorder? Um, some things that I typically look for are the basic overview question is: Is this interfering with our daily life? All right, is food and the thought of what am I eating today? What did I have yesterday? Let me plan out what I'm going to have tomorrow. And if I have broccoli for lunch, then I'm going to have green beans for dinner. If those are the kind of thoughts that are keeping you up at night. That, to me, is a warning sign that, that maybe there's some disordered eating going on, all right? But there are emotional issues, behavioral issues, physical issues. So, obviously, any kind of weight loss or, or constant dieting, um, which, by the way, can I just please pause it for a second and just say, diets don't work. They don't work. 98% of people who diet actually gain more weight than they did within two years of going on the diet, all right? They don't work. And so instead of having a diet mentality, our job is to have a balanced lifestyle mentality, all right? And that can include, like I said before, having some ice cream, enjoying a brownie, 
those kind of things because that is going to lead to a much healthier lifestyle than this idea of dieting and restricting, which, as we know, then tends to lead to more of a binge problem, all right? So coming back to those warning signs, any kind of weight loss, dieting, and and the the preoccupation with food are things that I would be, uh, that kind of give me some red flags, all right? I would also say some kind of food ritual. Um, You know, people who are very picky about having their food touch each each other on the plate, all right? Um, That would be considered a food ritual. Or if a person um, has to cut up their food into tiny little pieces before they eat it, that's a food ritual, all right? Um, Now, some of these are just habits. I I will say one of my food rituals is, it's so random, but I don't eat the pointy end of a French fry. I don't know why. It just bugs me. I don't like the pointy ends. Not that they taste any different whatsoever, but I'm going to find the flat end of a French fry. I'm going to bite it, and I'm going to throw down the pointy pointy end of the French fry. All right? That's a food ritual. I'm still going to eat the French fry. I'm just not going to eat the pointy end. All right? But if those food rituals are getting greater and greater, that to me is a warning sign. That's a red flag, all right? Also, any kind of social withdrawal. Um, so people who won't eat dinner around other people. A lot of, of times that those people who struggle with eating disordered behaviors have a really hard time eating in front of other people. And so they will end up skipping out on... Um, on a a party or a friend meal, they'll say, oh, I'll eat before I came, or I've already eaten, I'm going to eat later, I haven't worked out yet, so I'm going to not eat yet. You know, those kind of things, there are a lot of excuses that go into not having to eat in front of other people. That would be a big warning sign to me. Um, Any kind of mood swings, the extreme mood swings, Y'all, when you don't eat, you're hungry. And when you're, you're hungry, your brain isn't going to work right. And so there's going to be some fluctuation in attitude. I like the Snickers commercial, you know, where they pull out like, oh, my gosh, you need a Snicker because this crazy monster just came out. And as soon as they eat a Snickers, they're back to their old self. Well, there's kind of some truth to that, you know. When we don't feed our bodies and our brains, we're going to get grouchy. It's not fun. Um, we're going to have a hard time concentrating. We're not going to be able to sleep. There can be a lot of um, dizziness, you know, when you, you try to stand up and walk around. Um, there a lot of pain in the stomach. Um, that's kind of a red flag that we want to, to look out for, as well as um, noticing the hair. Um, when the hair gets really dry and brittle or um, the teeth kind of get a yellowish Uh, tent to them or um, sometimes people can have really foul breath and that's uh, a lot of times it's from vomiting Um, so all of those kind of red flags those are the things that I would say are I'm looking for as some different warning signs to know do I have an eating disorder is this normal is this healthy or not Okay, our next question is one that I get a lot. And I think that a lot of the the parents, especially the moms that come in my office, when they have a child who's struggling, this is a question that they ask, all right? But one of the guys at this panel asked this question, and I love it, all right? And he asked, I've heard that eating disorders are your parents' fault. Is that right? Huh, 
Well, any of those of us who are parents just cringe at the thought that we would be the cause of our child's eating disorder, all right? So let me reassure you that we know that families can actually be some of the best advocates for recovery and for change that a a person can have, all right? So whether it's parents being an advocate or a spouse being an advocate, families can be a huge, huge benefit from us when we're willing to all come in together, all right? So to answer that question, is it your parents' fault? No, not necessarily, all right? So eating disorders are considered a biopsychosocial disorder, all right? And when we talk about biopsychosocial, that means there are several different factors, all right? The biological factors that are associated with eating disorders have to do with, like, your family history, um, any kind of history of dieting, any kind of genetic predisposition. We do know that this is where, you know, sometimes hereditary comes into play, that eating disorders are very hereditary. And so in that way, a lot of times we can uh, receive some of the genes that, re- that are associated with eating disorders from our family, all right? So there's the biological aspect, but then there's the psychological aspect, all right? And so the psychological aspect has to do with what has happened in your life that perhaps contributed to your own low self-esteem, to um, poor relationships, whether it's relationships with other people. Have you felt like others have um, abandoned you? Do you feel like they have left you? Do you feel like you fit in? So relationships with others, but then also the relationships with yourself. Like, do you feel like you're inadequate um, what, what does your, your own anxiety, your loneliness, your fear, your depression, all of those things would, would factor in to the psychological aspect of eating disorders. But then there's also the social aspect, all right? So the social aspect is what are the cultural norms that you associate with? For instance, if you are a male athlete and you have others teammates on your on your um on your team who can bench press a certain number a cultural social factor would be are you able to maintain the same level of strength that other teammates are all right now a lot of times we talk about like instagram and media and that kind of thing yes that also factors in but for guys in particular it really seems to be more of a of a social of a local social context that would hit them harder than more of like the the Instagram and um, the media aspect of movie stars and stuff like that. A lot of times women seem to deal with that more often. Not to say that men can't, but it's just more common for guys to deal with other males that they are in association with, all right? Um, so the, the social factors also have to do with um, any kind of trauma that can have has happened. Um, especially it, well, any kind of sexual abuse, but especially males who have been sexually abused, a lot of times will develop an eating disorder as a result of that, all right? We know that eating disorders are coping skills. So, yes, it is very important for us to talk about food and what is going into the body, all right? But there's a great phrase, and it goes like this. It's not about what you're eating, it's about what's eating you. 
And I really like that. It's not about what you're eating. It's about what's eating you, all right? I mean, yeah, to a degree, it's about what you're eating. And that's why we have a dietitian on staff. And, and that's why we have to have a meal plan and have a food journal and that kind of thing. It's about what you're eating. But if we want to really find out what's driving the eating disorder, we've got to find out what's eating you. And this is where the social aspects of of the eating disorder are coming in. We've got to find out what the function of it is, all right? Eating disorders serve some kind of function. They do something for us. We don't ever repeat a behavior that we don't get something out of. All right, so we're getting something out of this eating disorder behavior, whether it's just a sense of companionship. I know I'll have a lot of kids come in and they, they're just lonely. And so their eating disorder for them gave them something to think about. It gave them something to do on Friday night when they didn't have plans with their friends. All right, sometimes I, I will liken it to an abusive boyfriend or an abusive girlfriend, all right? that it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend, but it's not a healthy one, all right? And so the eating disorder has some sort of function. So that's the social aspect, right? So when we talk about eating disorders, it's not just about what your parents have done to you, all right? It's about a biopsychosocial disorder. Now, here's the kicker. As Christians, we, I would add that there also is a spiritual aspect of it, all right? So I'm going to add biosocial, <laughs> try to say that one, biopsychosocial spiritual aspect to your eating disorder, all right? Because what we know is that the Lord has given us a spirit within us, all right? And so we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that has to be addressed when it comes to our eating disorders, all right? We are created with that spiritual realm that is interacting with us on a daily basis. That we know that we as believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that cannot be avoided and ignored when we're going through treatment for eating disorders, all right? So we have to address each of those different areas But I really do think that as believers, it's so critical that we talk about that spiritual aspect, that spiritual realm of what has caused the eating disorder. What are our beliefs about God? Do we believe that God is still there? Do we believe that we have disappointed God so much that he has done this to us or that he has given this eating disorder to us? All right. I'm going to transition that into the next question, which is a really good one, and it's kind of a doozy, all right? So bear with me. But the next question that was asked at the panel was, are eating disorders a sin? Whew, are eating disorders a sin? So here's my answer to that. To assume that a person with an eating disorder is willfully acting out of disobedience, is the same as assuming that a person with diabetes is willfully choosing to naturally not make insulin. It makes no sense whatsoever, all right? Eating disorders are an illness that nobody would choose for themselves. When you are, are in the throes of an eating disorder, you know, I hear people joke all the time, you know, it's common on the airplane 
when people say, oh, what do you do when you have those little small talk conversations and I start talking, I can't tell you how often I hear the phrase, oh, I wish I could have a little anorexia, all right? I know that those are comments that are made, you know, out of, out of jest. They're supposed to be funny. But anybody who has dealt with an eating disorder and really seen the torture that it causes would understand that this is not something that a person would willfully choose for themselves or for their worst enemy, all right? Now, having said that, all sicknesses, all right? So all sicknesses, whether it's cancer or anxiety or an eating disorder, all sicknesses are a result of the the fallen condition of the world that we're living in right now. And that in itself is why we need a savior to make all of these broken things new again, all right? So when we talk about eating disorders being a sin, we have got to let that go. We have got to avoid this blame game, all right? Those with eating disorders struggle enough with immense shame and humiliation as it is, all right? They struggle to believe that they are enough, period. Good enough, strong enough, athletic enough, smart enough, whatever you want to fill in the blank with and enough, all right? So for us to heap the you're in sin or this is a sin on you is just cruel, all right? A lot of times this feeling that they're not enough is what has led to the eating disorder in the first place, all right? So we know that eating disorders are not by any means a choice that a person would make, all right? Now, Having said that, though, we have a choice. The Lord has given us our free will to choose help and to choose recovery, all right? So that's a beautiful piece of it, and that in itself is where the responsibility lies. A person doesn't choose to have an eating disorder, but they can choose and they have to choose whether to get help and and to choose recovery. It is hard hard work. But we have the comfort that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion and and that he is never going to give us more than we can handle. So if for some reason the Lord in his all infinite wisdom has determined that us struggling with an eating disorder is what we need to go through, is that what we need to endure? then he is going to give us the means and the grace to handle that eating disorder. It is never, ever going to be too much for us to handle. One of the things that distinguishes Christianity between all the other religions is that we serve a God that gives love and forgiveness and healing, not because of our own efforts, not because of the things that we can do because we're good enough and you know, we're, you know, Christian enough or whatever. But he gives that love and healing and forgiveness by his own free grace. And healing can start with the realization that we are loved unconditionally and unchangeably by the one and true God. So are eating disorders a sin? That is not a choice. Eating disorders are not a sin. But we have to choose what is right and what is good and what is holy 
And we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Our job, according to scripture, is to take our thoughts captive. And so when our eating disorder thoughts, when body image thoughts start overwhelming our mind, we are called to act in obedience by taking our thoughts captive and reframing them on what we know to be true. There is nowhere in scripture that talks about our worth being associated with a number. Have you ever thought about that? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that our worth is based on a number, not a calorie, not a size of clothing, not the number of weight we can bench press, not a salary. Nowhere in the Bible is our, our worth dependent on a number. This is our our sinful nature, this is where our sinful nature has decided to insert what we could say is worthy and good and right. When Christ has said, no, 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 I've already done that for you. I am your savior. I tell you what is good and right and holy and worthy. And I have created you fearfully and wonderfully and nothing Nothing, not a size, not a weight, not a calorie, nothing is going to change who I have created you to be. All right, the last question that I want to tackle for today, because I know that we're, we're getting close on time, is what do you say to somebody who you're worried about? I think that this is a good way to, to close our, our time together. What do you say to somebody that you're worried about? Having these conversations is never, ever easy. All right, so no going into it, the approach that you can take is going to have a world of difference on how they hear it, all right? So just basic, how do I go to somebody? The first thing you have to do is go with a spirit of humility, all right? If a person feels like you're coming and attacking them and judging them and saying, I know that you're not eating, I've seen that, you've skipped out on this and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all right? If they know that, that's not going to be received very well, all right? And so I think that our approach to somebody that we're concerned about is to state the facts. And the fact is, hey, George, I've noticed that you haven't been around for our team dinners lately. And I just wondered what's going on. You know, and so we're posing it as a question of, hey, I'm concerned about you and not, hey, what's your problem? You're dropping weight, all right? So going to that person and saying, hey, listen, because I care about you, I've noticed some things that I'm kind of worried about. And so I think that it's really important that the approach that we take with somebody that we're concerned about is that one of compassion and care. Again, knowing that this is not something that a person chooses Uh, You know, I hear parents all the time just say, I just don't understand why she didn't just go eat a hamburger, you know. That's a really insensitive, and, and while I know that it is meaning to be an innocent comment, it's not taken that way at all. Um, it's actually a very um, ignorant comment because it shows that you don't understand the complexities of eating disorders, all right? And so when we approach somebody who is potentially struggling when we can go into it asking questions of them, of saying, hey, can you tell me what's going on? Can you tell me what you're thinking about? Can you tell me if food is becoming something that you're worried about? All right. 
So approaching them in a way that it makes them want to come and talk to us and not shut us down, all right? Now listen, there are no guarantees that when you go talk to somebody, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for coming and talking to me. I've been waiting for this, all right? You got to be prepared that they're probably going to be caught off guard. And if they are genuinely struggling with an eating disorder, then you bringing it up is threatening to take it away from them, all right? And so when a person responds out of defense, that is a sign that maybe there is something more going on, all right? They don't want you taking away what they have found comfort in, and that's a hard place to be. Now, I would continue to encourage you to go back to that person, like let this be um, conversation number one of 20 conversations, okay? Hey, I've been thinking about you. Hey, you know, can I be praying for you? Is there anything you want to talk about? That kind of thing. Because again, it's not necessarily about what they're eating. It's about what's eating them, all right? And so there's so much more to the bigger picture than just the food talk that we have to be friendly and kind and compassionate and patient to go and see what's really driving this. Are you anxious about something? Are you disappointed in something? Are you worried about something? What else is going on, all right? Um, Then I also think if a person is willing to get some help, I encourage others to to say that they would go with them to counseling. Um, I think a lot of times people just want somebody to drive them or even give them the accountability of having some time to, to be there together. You don't have to go back with them unless they want you to, and then, you know, that's between you and them and, and the counselor. But be willing to say, hey, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll be there. I'm not going anywhere, you know. Or if you do know that they went to counseling that day, shoot them a text and say, hey, I've been praying for you. How'd it go? Do you want to talk about it? All right, is there anything I can do? So really approaching them with this sense the same way that Christ approaches us he doesn't, he doesn't fight us. He doesn't get frustrated with us. You know, how many times do we fail him? How many times do we think that our way is the way? And when he comes to us, he comes the way a shepherd cares for his sheep, out of love and tenderness and care. And that is, is our goal and our job when we're working with other people or when we're in relation with other people. That's what we want to convey to them. That is going to point so much more them to Christ than anything else that we can come, any argument we can come up with, any statistics that we can spout out. Having just that sense of care and compassion is truly what someone needs. Y'all, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Ask Alice. As always, we love hearing from you, so please continue to send in your questions, and we will go back to answering them next time. Our email address is askalice at rootedministry.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ask Alice, part of the Rooted Network family of podcasts. For more resources designed to equip and encourage you to faithfully disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ, be sure to find Rooted on the internet at www.rootedministry.com.